You're listening to Faith and Reason 360. I'm Debo Dykes. And I'm David Dykes. And we're going to begin our second segment in a three-part series. Um, the title of the entire series is called, Does Christianity Have a Future and What Elements of Christianity Will Survive? and what will be lost for future generations. This particular segment, we're going to focus on the historical and theological problems with payment understanding. And again, we are listening to audio clips from uh, Dr. Marcus Borg's lecture that he gave during a Faith and Reason seminar that we did at Christ Church Cathedral in 2013, and that would be in Houston, Texas. So um, before we get started, we also have two guests, again, returning with us, uh, Janet Cooper Nelson and Peter Larman. And David, would you do a little introduction, please? I will. The, The Reverend Janet Cooper Nelson is chaplain of the university and the director of the Office of Chaplains and Religious Life and faculty member at Brown University. She was appointed at Brown in 1990 after appointments at Vassar College, Mount Holyoke College, and the Church of Christ at Dartmouth College. As Brown University's chaplain, she leads a multi-faith team of associate chaplains and oversees the university's broad circle of religious life uh, affiliates who advise student religious organizations. Welcome, Janet. Peter Larman, whom we've had as a guest on previous podcasts, is a retired United Church of Christ minister who served as senior minister of New York's Judson Memorial Church and as executive director of California's Progressive Christians Uniting. Peter is a contributing editor to Religious Dispatch and is also a director of the D.L. Dykes Jr. Foundation. So welcome, Peter. Great to be here. And Janet, welcome. I know that you didn't quite get a moment to respond to your introduction, so hello, Janet. Thank you so much. It's wonderful to join you. Well, it's great to have the four of us back again uh, for another lively discussion. Um, Marcus Borg, in uh, 2013, which I mentioned a few moments ago, he did this lecture And, of course, the name of the seminar, the Faith and Reason Seminar, was Does Christianity Have a Future? And surprisingly, at uh, one point during the Q&A section uh, segment of that uh, seminar, someone in the uh, audience, there were over a thousand people uh, in the nave, and someone just asked uh, Dr. Borg, well, does Christianity have a future? Is it going to survive? And Dr. Borg paused for a moment, and then he, in his very gracious style, said, probably not. And it's I could just see the crowd not quite know how to respond to that. So I think these discussions are important. Uh, so... Um, Having said that, let's go ahead and listen to the first audio clip of this segment. I began with perhaps the most obvious historical problem. 
It is not central in the first thousand years of Christianity. In the New Testament, it is at most a minor metaphor, and some scholars say it's not there at all, and I'm inclined to agree with that position. It was first systematically articulated by Anselm, a brilliant monk, priest, abbot, and eventually Archbishop of Canterbury. That doesn't mean Anglican. This was in the late uh, 1000s, and so it was still Catholic. In his book, Cur Deus Homo, published in 1098, in English, the title of that book means Why Did God Become Human? And his purpose in that book was to provide a rational argument for the necessity of the incarnation and death of Jesus. He used a model drawn from his cultural setting, namely, the relationship between a medieval lord and his subjects. When a subject, that is, a peasant, disobeyed the lord, Could the Lord simply forgive if he wanted to? No, Anselm said, for that would suggest that disobedience didn't matter very much. Instead, payment, (coughs) excuse me, instead payment, satisfaction must be made so so that the Lord's honor and order were maintained. Anselm then applied this model to our relationship with God. God cannot simply forgive sins. Sins must be paid for. Of course, the the idea of God's honor is also tied up in patriarchy, is it not? Violence, patriarchy, and domination? What's not to like in this medieval inheritance? (laughs) That's a pretty cocky question. Who, Who will respond? I think uh, if I can join your question to Marcus Borg's reply to that lecture of probably not, I think, but of course I wasn't there and I didn't get to ask him, he may well have been replying to exactly this idea, that the things that in many cases we have identified deeply with Christianity may not stand up to the challenges of the gospel, to be radically identified with the dispossessed and the poor and the suffering. And, and this is the hard part, and for Christianity to look itself squarely in the eye and ask, how have we been, as the church, the perpetrators of harm to the dispossessed and the marginalized? And I wish the case against us was not as strong as it is. I'm not a litigator, but I think even I could prove this one. Mm -hmm. Um, We have much for which to repent, and our fingers are all over, fingerprints are all over words like honor and uh, order and things that must be done um, and our unwillingness to hear when children have been abused or the gay have been set outside, or the women of the world have been tyrannized 
in relationships that we called marriages that were in fact, you know, uh, captive settings for abuse. We must, as dreadful as it is, we must face the fact that pastors and church doctrine and practice and even just the social norms of religious congregations have made it impossible at times for the suffering that people were enduring to even be spoken. And how to be complicit for that? I do think we have real strength in the church around our penitential uh, rights and orders, but here we must move much more deeply beyond uh, piety uh, to real structural accountability. And maybe Borg is saying to us, I don't think so, because he saw the structural problems that were wound around these ideas, and he wondered if he could root them out without pulling the whole thing down. Yeah, and they're structural, um, and they're also, you know, uh, substantive in terms of the concept. So, so honor. Think about that. Uh, what Anselm of Canterbury had in mind was a specific kind of honor: the honor of a male ruler, a, a male uh, king, essentially. Right? He's adapting the medieval uh, code to the- theological purpose. Um, it doesn't matter that we don't have kings and vassals any longer. When that conception is rooted in our heads and hearts, what we end up with is a, um, you know, an angry male god. Looking at our culture today and noticing, as we can't fail to notice, the amount of violence against women, the incredibly violent nature of our criminal justice system, um, Uh, All of that is a a really hideous carryover of offended, powerful male honor. Uh, So how can that not be problematic? Just, you know, theologically, sociologically, any way you want to slice it. I'm going to jump in real quick. And, um, you know, this is a a real tender subject for me uh, when you talk about the violence against women and the women of the world. And I think that if we continue to um, s- recite and read, I don't care if you're just reading silently to yourself, but if we continue to use language that is specific to the male gender, when we read biblical text, then I don't see there being any change. I don't see uh, the possibility for violence against women uh, to to actually go away, to be addressed as it should be adequately, uh, people being held accountable, because as long as, and Anselm had, had a lot to do with this, with a king figure, which is male, as long as we refer to God in the in the um, gender-specific language of male, he and father, I think we're going to continue to have issues. I have no idea where to where to begin to try to change that, but uh, I think there have been other uh, organized uh, institutional church dominations that have made attempts to do that. I know the Episcopal Church has tried to do that over the past 30 years to be more inclusive with the language, but 
um, I just don't hear it happening. Devil, I got to tell you, the the most powerful evangelical leaders, including young ones in our country, are pushing back so hard against changing the pronouns, right? Changing the gender yeah. pronouns. Mm-hmm. This is a this is for them. And the way they put it is interesting. They say, well, we don't get to decide these things because the Lord decided them. I would call that a rather circular way of yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, but I think that's, I think you're right I'm, on I'm target. I'm serious. I'm serious. Yeah. People, these are, these are fighting words for people. You know, if God is not he, then all is lost. Well, Peter, you just said it. They're fighting words. Well, we've got a violent God in control. And, you know, you just said it just then. So I feel like I've kind of taken us off off course. And so, but I did. I don't think you have it all, Debo. I think that the question of what, how, I often say this with my medical students, every great why needs a great how. So if the why we're trying to accomplish is a fuller, more inclusive humanity for the church, how are we going to get there? The number of people I have annoyed over my ministry with my feminist insistence is a long list, and maybe on this forum I can publicly apologize to all of them, (laughs) because my why was clearly not making it through the transporter to a decent how and I don't have a brilliant solution, but I have an idea. Here's my idea. Okay. I actually half wrote this article 30 years ago. Peter's always telling me about stuff I should write. Um, it's too busy a time in my life to write, but maybe I'll get there. But at that point, I said about the fatherhood of God, which, as you know, is such a precious idea to people, that I didn't think we should get rid of it. I thought but we try retiring it for a hundred years. So we would put it carefully, gently, preciously in a time capsule and set it aside and agree not to speak of God and God's fathership only for those hundred years. And then we could open back up again and take it out. Um, My thought was that if we got more robust, nuanced, clever, imaginative, in the way God can be named and is named in scripture, we would get to a new place. I think I still agree with myself. <laughs> oh my God, Janet, I, I totally, totally agree with you. Ooh, I love it. A time capsule. I've got it. I love it. Go but ahead. So then what about all these lectionary texts and stories we've been telling? They're not the only things in scripture. And there's a wonderful woman whose name is Gaffney, who has rewritten the whole lectionary with an idea of moving beyond uh, patriarchal texts and more inclusively into all of Scripture to look more uh, deeply at texts we have never preached, at texts that have never done the round of the year in the way they should. And you can buy all of her work um, on Amazon, should you want to, and I'm sure there must be a website we can add this to for, for listeners so they can get yes. up. Oh, yeah, but we definitely this work, will. This is work that really is the dear and tender scholarly work of the church by its pastors, but it's actually the how of accomplishing a great why. That's really great. That is really, really great. I mean, I've, I've been giving some thought to the the emergence of, uh, and we certainly see this 
on campuses like this one, um, the non-binary community, insofar as human beings are uh, in the image of and likeness of God, perhaps the non-binary community is telling us something about the nature of the divine. You could edit that out if you like. No, 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 I like that. I was waiting for David to respond. Well, I'm... I want to go. I, want, I also want to go back to this Anselm, and then we can leave him in his 12th century sar- sarcophagus. Yeah, let's but, do that. Um, I want you to. You know, if the question is why did God become human, why does the answer have to be? I've never understood it. Why does the answer have to be so this transaction could be accomplished? Do you see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, yeah. uh, evidently, his solution was admired for being logically consistent, but it doesn't seem consistent to me. That's a side point. We can we can we can leave that there. It's obvious he was obsessed with sin, right? That was his starting off point, rather than rather than uh, 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 div- divinity simply enveloping us and elevating us. Well, and it's directly related to a struggle that is so old that it predates Jesus, um, in the historical context of. How is God acting or present in the world? Um, and I do still think the best recent text on this front is from Rabbi Kushner about when bad things happen to good people. Um, because clearly, for the Christian mind, the goodest of the good was Jesus. And the bad thing that happened to him couldn't have been worse. So what is going on there? And if the answer is the God who sent him required it, I'm afraid I'm in favor of paganism. Um, I, I just that's no God I would ever want to be in the room with. Not that I could escape it necessarily. And I think Kushner, with great poignancy, wades into that question, watching his dear progeria-ridden son die, and says, "Well, you know, we're actually pretty good people. Like, why is this happening?" But he ends up at the nexus of the hardest theological question ever, which is, who is God and how does God act in the world? And if instead of saying God allows his son to be crucified, we say instead God is not going to prevent our worst actions, but God invites us to join with God in doing the good. Then I think we start looking at the Holocaust. We start looking at every genocide. We look at every patriarchal violence and say, where is the accountability for that? The modern word for it I learned from my 38-year-old son is who radicalized that person? So, I mean, radicalization by Jesus, it seems to me, leads us toward nonviolence, And when Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen God. Then you see Jesus on the cross, I think, entirely differently. You see him present in a world that does evil, that murders, that executes, and not resisting that world, but living with us in it and calling us to a different life. And further, in a way, calling for the end of all Sacrifice. This event is, in fact, a rebuke of of so-called sacrificial atonement. Well, and and in the early church, I mean, the heresy of patripassionism, 
was absolutely about people deciding the way to get get out of the world and make sure you made it to heaven was, you know, to just die for something. And the church leaders have to step in and go, no, the, the, the gift of Jesus' life. Jesus' life is not taken. It's given. He does not resist the evil of the world, which can be directed at anyone, and instead says, in all of that, God is faithful. And in fact, if I can use a different word than we use with resurrection, God is irrepressible. God cannot leave dead that which is alive. And that's Jesus' sinlessness. It's not his ability to like carry like the, the scapegoat of Israel, right. all of the sins on his back. That sacrificialness is gone, and the sacrifice of Jesus is once for all, no more. We're to live radiantly toward the realm of heaven, joining God as Jesus tells us, we're going to do greater things than he did? I don't know. I haven't seen it yet. But, I mean, it's, it's a different calling than the one that says, go find your cross and, and crash under it. Well, in this second clip, Dr. Borg uh, talked about Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion of the Christ. Do I hear groans in the audience? Uh, but anyway, we're going to listen to that clip uh, it's going to be interesting to see how it fits into our conversation. So I turn to the theological problems. First, it makes Jesus' death part of God's plan of salvation. Indeed, God's will. God loves us so much, but yet also requires payment. And so God sent God's only son to pay for our sins. The death of this immeasurably great man becomes the will of God. Secondly, it emphasizes that God is wrathful and that God's wrath must be satisfied. But is that what God ultimately is like? Thirdly, it makes Jesus' life less important than his death and thus obscures his message and what he was passionate about. Recall Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion of the Christ, from nine years ago now. That movie, as you probably remember, focused on the last 12 hours, 18 hours of Jesus' life from his arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane through his torture and crucifixion, all of that implying that the most important thing about Jesus was his death and not about what preceded that. And it makes believing in Jesus more important than following him. So what about this believing versus following idea? How big a problem is this? I think it's a problem. I think Christian believers need to ask themselves, uh, is it enough to believe only, or do they need to actually follow and do as Jesus did? Um, I think as recently as the 19th century, you know, the church got, it's a Protestant church in the United States, got itself really tangled around this dilemma, when in fact, on one side of the argument were people going, if you're not a real believer, 
then we don't care if you can think or know or study or any of that because that's just all intellectualism and that doesn't matter. Um, and there were other people saying, well, you know, if you're a real follower, none of this academic stuff matters at all. Don't just get in there and follow along. Um, there's, it seems to me we really must ask ourselves, and again, I guess I might start looking in the mirror in the morning, we're fairly paradoxical creatures, it seems to me. We are capable of belief, and like Thomas, we're capable of unbelief, um, even when it's right in front of us. And there are days when we can, as the disciples did, follow Jesus and see his great works and seek to emulate him. And there are other days when, frankly, if somebody asks us if we know him, we run the other direction and deny him three times, 10 times, 20 times. So I think this notion that somehow believers are more important, believers are even something, strikes me as maybe, maybe, maybe just arrogant and too much. Um, I think it might be better to let the indictment, if you can call it that, we're in court and somebody accuses us of being Christian, let that indictment be proved by our actions and our actual following of Jesus, not by our assertions that somehow we were there, we were present, my grandmother was there, uh, gave money for this church, whatever. Um, I, I think we've gotten tangled in our institutionalism in such a way that we may not even realize how far away we are from the rescue that is present for us in Jesus from a lot of this, um, uh, I don't know, curmudgeonly institutionalism that rarely does any institution any good. And Janet, you made the point to me in a, in a side conversation we had uh, about the way in which believing gives people a kind of badge you know, it gives, it gives them a kind of uh, 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 a badge of honor or badge of privilege or something like that. In a way, it, it closes people off from being fully responsive to others, right? Fully present uh, or receptive to the um, to the voices of others. Decades ago, uh, Martin Buber wrote a little book um, uh, called Two Types of Faith. And he contrasted the Hebraic uh, version, uh, uh, which in Hebrew is emuna, uh, trust, to the Greek version, pistis in the head, right? Belief in the head. This belief in the head, uh, in some ways, is is you know uh, uh, you know dangerous, right? And in respect to isolating us from other people and other realities. Uh, maybe more trust and less belief in that intellectual sense. I was going to say just more openness to the fact that the person you're meeting and know not much about at all may be more radiantly faithful by some other path than yours. And this notion of believing, it's almost become like a secret frat handshake or a code um, instead of the radicalizing experience that I think for Paul on the road to Damascus, his uh, sense of belief was radically changed. And as a result of that, he radically acts differently. Um, that seems not to be so much about our confirmation classes or our 
uh, ritualized baptisms with our dear babies, which I love doing. Love, love, love it. Right. But, um, I, you know, that notion then if, if we're going to receive those children into our arms, how prepared are we to launch, launch them into that very risky business of loving God? Well, and Janet, you mentioned to me that, um, and, and I think it's a really good point, it sticks with me, that for the aggressive evangelizers, putting the cross in your face, you know, wearing it in public in a way that's, you know, obviously intended to draw attention, uh, uh, in a way, they welcome the negative reaction because that way they can say, well, see, it's a stumbling block. It's always been a stumbling block. I get it. You don't. I'm in. You're out. Well, and I think, I mean, in some countries of the world, we've even seen, again, France, uh, make rules uh, that you cannot wear the cross, which, of course, then leads to you cannot wear hijab. Um, you know, so I think the question of how does our, you know, kind of uh, low-cost imposition of our believer status end up being very high tariff on other people. Absolutely. Absolutely. We were with extended family last week, and uh, one of the people in the family is a very devout, uh, everyday confessing Christian. And she said, do you believe? Do you believe? And I said, yeah, I believe, but I also think. So it's, you know, everywhere we go, we meet this idea that being faithful means believing and not wavering. But in, in, in no place do we say, well, yeah, but what do you do with that? How, how do you not think about uh, what it's going to take for you to actually practice the life that, uh, that uh, Jesus showed us how to live? I think that question is, is, is so critical. To ask, and yet I don't know what it was like with your family member um, to be in that conversation. But I have to say, in my pastoral duties in the church over the years, that's a tough moment. Uh, when I got here to Brown, I think I'd been here about six weeks when I was walking home one night, and a student, uh, I think the only thing he would likely have heard from me at that point would have been the prayers at convocation, which I very intentionally worded and structured in a very spacious way. Um, I've always thought of those pu moments of public prayer as my opportunity to evoke prayer from someone, mm -hmm. not to impose prayer. Mm -hmm. It's a different verb, but it matters to me. And this guy stopped me on the street. I really just wanted to get home to my seven-year-old and get some dinner put together. And he said, without, without saying his name, without asking my name, without an introduction, he said, is the Lord Jesus your Savior? And he wanted an answer, yes or no, and everything hung in the balance. I don't know if I did the right thing, but I said to him, that is such important conversation. I refuse to answer your question. Will you come see me? Good one. And he looked at me sort of startled. And he said, where? I said, in my office. And then we did the pleasantries of who are you and who are you. And he did. And we had a pretty good talk. I've been pinned to the wall at the same point. I've got, I always have an answer. I say, well, let me quote 
uh, John's gospel to you, for God so loved the world, and then I stop. Now, that causes causes trouble with some people. I say, I'm stopping because isn't that the most important part of the formula? For God so loved the world. You know, I I experience too often um, that this, what I call this badge of blind belief, is is often an instrument of judgment, and it gives an individual the right to do just the opposite of what the Christian tradition uh, and many of the other traditions themselves. Um, Stress, and that is the acceptance of all people, love thy neighbor as thyself, um, et cetera, et cetera. But all of a sudden, this, uh, these individuals are just given, uh, a point blank, um, opportunity to, to put you in a position of a, a blatant yes, no answer, which there really isn't a yes, no answer. Uh, for those thinkers and those who uh, harbor a deep uh, faith, uh, it's not that simple. And so I just uh, find it really difficult to be in those positions because they, they're passing judgment already. Yeah, but how do, we, how do we invite them to see it a different way? I mean, I, I can't imagine... Well, I think Janet did a pretty good job when he said, come to my office. And yeah, that's a great yeah. one, sure. I do think, though, that you, if you, again, go back to Scripture itself, right? Let's go to Palm Sunday, and uh, the folks who are hollering Hosanna, right? Yeah. And blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And uh, tell, those, you know, tell those folks to hush, right? And the answer is, if I told them to hush, the stones would cry out. I mean, I think there's an arrogance on the part of believers that if they don't say it, you know, somehow God will lack for a voice in the world mm-hmm. to explain what's holy. I, I That seems pretty arrogant to me. I'm not sure my voice is ever adequate for expressing the holiness of God. Uh, but the idea that if I don't speak it, you know, that it won't be spoken. Now, I know <clears throat> from the epistles that I'm told that if I'm ever ashamed of my identity— that God will be ashamed of me, right? Um, I I actually don't take that to be um, entirely uh, trackable to Paul. Um, And I think it probably is the beginning of this practice, very, very early in the second century church. Um, And people are, you know, holding each other to, hey, speak it out, even if you get arrested. Well, I remember a, a classmate of mine who headed down into the Deep South after graduation from Harvard Divinity School, and he was in the Klan's hands uh, in his parish. People used to come to church with guns, and he was a really, really, really good baseball player, and the Klan had a baseball team, and so they basically set up this quid pro quo. You know, they weren't going to stop hassling as, as a pastor if he'd just play on the team. <laughs> no, that's keeping it practice. And they, I love that. And he what, didn't know what to do. He really was stuck. And so one night, his wife, who was a nurse and had to drive over the mountains to go to her job, um, was greeted on the road by probably some of these folks from church, and they sliced her tires and left her there in the dark. And then the next weekend, some of these guys were hoo-hawing it around in the par- parking lot, shooting out the lights. And Michael called, and he said, what am I to do? Do I stay here holding up the, you know, the way of the gospel? Well, some of us were bright enough not to answer his question and get Krister Stendhal on the call. 
And Bishop Stendhal, our wonderful dean, said to him, Michael, you could go ahead and die right there in the parking lot. One of those bullets could go anywhere. Do you think Jesus would be better off? And Michael and Ella packed that night and came north. Um, <laughs> you know, it just it, it wasn't solvable. I mean, there are places right. where I think the assertion of Jesus can make such a difference. I think there are other times when you're just in a violent contest and anything you say will only make it worse. It's good Amen. Insight. Yeah. Yeah. I think we're out of time. Um, I hate, I hate to stop us. Um, but, uh, we do have another segment that we can continue with, uh, later on. So thank you, Peter and Janet. Um, it has just been a thrill. Any, any uh, thoughts or closing comments at this point that need to be made? If not, we'll just bring it to well, a close. On this, on this future thing, we know, as Janet said so eloquently, we know there's a future. But I think in terms of the sociology in this country, we're going to have a really bifurcated future with a whole lot of people lifting high the cross and, and doing the, you know, the vengeful thing. For a long time to come, um, and then there's going to be people uh, not on the other side, but just doing different things, and we'll leave it in God's hands to find out who's, you know, doing the godly thing. I also would make a, an appeal to all of us to to be compassionate one to another. This is a very tender and difficult time, and every time Pew releases yet another study you know, to tell us how few people are are religious or whatever. I know, particularly for those of us more in my age bracket, it really worries people to their very souls. And here we must learn in our prayers and in our life together to trust God and God's faithfulness and God's people. Um, They are ever-present. We meet angels unaware all the time. And I think what the structures may be going forward could be at risk. I really do think that's a possibility, but I don't think God's radiant witness in the world and God's contention always that eternity is is paved with the compassionate and loving acts of those of us who in mortality are invited to join God in doing those. That will ever be true. And Jesus was our teacher for those of us who claim his name. No need to lose faith. Compassion and love. That's excellent. Well, until we meet again, as it is said, um, thank you again. And for our listening audience, thank you also for being with us today. This has been a production of the D.L. Dykes Jr. Foundation, producers of Faith and Reason. Uh, Faith and Reason offers educational video, audio, and streaming materials. You can find us on the uh, internet at www dot faith and reason dot org. Additional funding is provided by the Winland Cook Foundation. <laughs>